going on. Holy, holy, holy. It doesn't feel like it here, let's be honest, right? But it's really happening. And one day, if we're in Christ, we'll be there and able to do that as well. Isn't that a glorious, glorious thought? All right, you may be seated. You may be seated. We're going to return to Genesis this morning, to Genesis 18. But before we do, I would invite you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. Um, I want to read to you a passage of Scripture there in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Several months ago, we notified you, the church, that a deacon, one of our deacons, one of the four had stepped down, leaving us with three to serve as deacon. And we had told you at the time that we would be prayerfully, as elders, prayerfully considering and, 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 and re- asking God to direct us to someone who might serve as a deacon in our church so that we might have four again. And this morning, I am informing you, the church, that the elders have asked Carrie Brown to serve as a deacon, and he has accepted. Carrie, would you stand up so that people can see you? Um, yeah, he's not much to look at, but no, I'm t- <laughs> they got your backside, yeah. That wasn't nice at all, but he can take it and he gives it to me, so I have to do it when I can. What we are doing this morning, though, is, is I want to point you to the scriptures in 1 Timothy chapter 3 that you would understand what the qualifications for that office are because they are not light. And so this morning, I want you to read this with me, and I want to point out to you that we as elders have evaluated Carrie in light of this passage, and I can firmly tell you he's not a perfect man, but in researching and looking at Carrie's life, we believe he meets these qualifications. Um, He's a humble man. He's a man who understands he has a lot to grow in and so forth. But what we are doing this morning is giving specifically the members of this church an opportunity to prayerfully consider Carrie Brown for deacon. And if you have concerns about his man, this man, biblical reason for Carrie not to serve, we would ask you to go speak with Carrie or to speak with one of the four elders of the church. And we'd ask you to do that in the next couple of weeks because our desire is to install Carrie as a deacon three weeks from now on Sunday, February 5th in our morning service. But I want to read to you the passage of Scripture that, that would apply to, to not just Carrie, but the other three deacons in our church, to Casey, to David Stelzer, to John Wells. These are, these are verses that apply to them, and these are the standard that, that God holds them to. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 8, deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who have served well as deacons gain a great good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. It's a lot to live up to. It's not just the man, but it's his family as well. So I would ask you to be prayerful about this. And if you have input, to share it with one of the elders or with Carrie. So with that said, I want to pray as we turn to Genesis chapter 18 this morning. 
But I want to pray for Carrie and his family and also want to pray for, for us this morning in these moments that we have in front of us that, that God would use this time for our profit. Don't you want God to profit your heart from the Word of God this morning? Then let's, let's ask Him to do that this morning as we, as we approach God's throne where they are crying, holy, holy, holy right now. And so, Father, as we cannot physically step into the throne room of heaven, but as we can, through prayer, walk right up to the throne and bow before you. And in our minds, we, we can imagine what it must be like to see those cherubim and seraphim crying back and forth, thundering, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. We acknowledge, just like Isaiah did when he saw it, that we, we don't belong here. We don't belong in the throne room of heaven, but we are so grateful that because of what Christ has accomplished, we can gain access to the throne room of heaven this morning. And so we are grateful for your church. We are grateful for the plan that, that you have and, and the plan for leading a church with, with godly men, not perfect men but men who are humble, men who are willing to, to obey you and follow you in your direction. And this morning we pray for Carrie and his family. We pray for Carla and for his children. God, that you would protect them. God, that you would use them in a mighty way in our church. That the words of 1 Timothy 3 would resonate in his heart and the other men in our church who serve as deacons. That they would be humble before you, that they would be dependent upon you, that they would be those who serve and serve you well. And may they get great joy in their service, we pray. Now, Lord, our thoughts are turning to Genesis chapter 18. It's been a while since we've been in Genesis, but God, we've learned so much already from, from Abram and from Sarah and from how you, God, act and how you have sovereignly superintended their lives. And so this morning as we come to Genesis 18 and we see this wonderful picture of God in the flesh coming and eating a meal with Abraham, I pray that you would teach us from your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So we return to Genesis, Genesis chapter 18. And when we were last in Genesis, it's been a while, in chapter 17, we, we saw that Abram had his name changed to Abraham. We saw that God gave to him the sign for the covenant, and that was circumcision, and we, we dealt with that and, and all of its implications. And then we saw that after God gave him the sign for the covenant, Abram, Abraham went out and immediately obeyed. And, and he and all the males in his household were circumcised. But we also saw, in fact, I'd ask you to go back to chapter 17 and verse 6. And we saw that, that God made a promise. God made a promise. And, and he made a promise specifically to to Abraham and to Sarah, and beginning in verse 15, and God said to Abraham, as for Sarah, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, and then we point out at that time as he falls down and on his face, it's a point of worship, right? And he's laughing inwardly like, 
how can this happen to a guy like me? You ever been there with God? God, how would you be so wonderful to me? How would you do that? It almost brings you to the point of just like, wow, I just can't even believe this, God. He laughed and said to himself, shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son and you shall call his name Isaac. There could God be any more clear as to what he is about to do. He tells him he's going to have a son through Sarah, and he even gives him the name. And so, if you go back to 17 and verse 1, you find out that Abram is 99 years old at the point of this visitation, okay? He's 99 years old. His wife is also 99 years old. They are old. They're really old. And so, now we get another visit. We get another visit. It says in 17.1 that the Lord appeared to Abram, and now in chapter 18, we're going to pick up here, and we're going to read verses 1 through 15, and we have what we call in the Scriptures in the Old Testament a theophany. Don't be scared of that word. A theophany is nothing more than a visit, a, a literal visit to earth by the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, okay? In John chapter 1, remember, Jesus is described as the Word became flesh, right, and dwelt among us. Jesus is God in the flesh. Am I right, church? He's God in the flesh. And so now in chapter 18, we have what Moses refers to as the Lord coming and visiting. Well, who is God in the flesh, church? It's Jesus. And now we have Jesus coming, and he's going to sit down and have a meal with Abraham. Just let that sink in for a second. Could you imagine this afternoon going home, and I don't know what you're planning for lunch. Who's having peanut butter and jelly, okay? And, and you're going to go home, and you're going to have lunch, and there's a knock on your door, and you have no idea who this stranger is, but it's Jesus, okay? That's the context this morning. Chapter 18, verse 1, And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, now, words matter. That Lord there is not all caps, Lord. It's, oh, Lord. It's a term that, that would have been a customary greeting to somebody as a, as a sign of respect and deference. Oh, or, you know, sir, you know, oh, Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves and that you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. Now, point out, he promises a morsel of bread, right? He promises a morsel of bread. Now, look what's in this for Sarah here, okay? Every woman can relate to this. Every woman can relate to this. The husband who makes a promise but delivers something far greater here, right? Verse 6, and Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, three seahs of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and it took a calf, tender and good, and he gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? What's interesting is he doesn't ask, what? How do you know my wife is... These are three strangers, right? 
giving you some clues here. Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she's in the tent. The Lord said, I will certainly or surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Look up here. Every wife, you've done that. Am I right? Your husband's having a conversation, and what are you doing? Go away, Bobby, go. Shh. Right? Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. That's a nice way of saying she ain't fruitful no more. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, No but you did laugh. No, but you did laugh. So we're dealing here with a theophany. Keep your finger here, and I want you to turn to a, a verse of Scripture that kind of helps us to understand what's going on here, way back in the book of James. Way back in the book of James. If you find the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, the next book, as you're going towards the back, is the book of James. And in James chapter 2, we read this in verse 23. James chapter 2 in verse 23. Well, let's get into it in verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, we already saw that in chapter 15, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And then we get this little tidbit, and he was called what? What does your Bible say? Friend of God. Abraham, friend of God. And you say to ourselves, man, that's amazing. And if it was only one time mentioned in Scripture, we might be able to kind of pass that off. Turn with me to 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles. That may be a little harder to find. That's in your Old Testament. 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles. And go to 2 Chronicles chapter 20. Those of you who are using phones and tablets, you're cheating right now. 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 7. This is King Jehoshaphat praying. By the way, don't name your kid Jehoshaphat. That's just a recipe for disaster. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people, Israel, and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your, your friend? That's twice in Scripture. Abraham's referred to as friend. Go with me and let's see a third time in Isaiah 41. Isaiah 41. Isaiah the prophet here. In Isaiah chapter 41 and verse 8. God here is, is talking. And he says this. But you, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my, my friend. Does it blow you away that God would call anyone a friend? 
After all, he's the holy one, right? He, we're not holy. He's holy. He's the one who's set apart, who's on the throne of heaven. And yet he called Abraham a friend. And it almost seems outlandish to us. But it really shouldn't because we see this friendship on display here in Genesis chapter 18. We see this friendship on display. We're going to see it in the course of two weeks. This morning, I'm going to deal with the first half of this dialogue. Jesus, the pre-incarnate Christ, shows up, God shows up at Abraham's doorstep, and he wants to have a conversation with Abraham for two big reasons. He wants to reiterate the promise so that Sarah can hear it herself, and he also wants to let Abraham know that he's going to have to do something about Sodom and Gomorrah. Pastor Andy gets to deal with that fun stuff next week, okay? We're going to deal with this this week, right? But we see dialogue here, and it might seem really foreign to us, but I would ask you again to look at another passage of Scripture in the book of John, John chapter 15. And as Jesus is talking to his disciples in the upper room, and he's giving them, if you will, last words, final words, all this instruction... In John chapter 15, he says this, verse 12, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my what? You are my friends if you do what I command you. Okay? Question for you, church. Does God change? Is He the same today as He was back during Jesus' time when He was here on the earth, and He is the same as He was when Abraham walked the earth? Is God the same? Is it possible then that you and I can be the friend of God? Is that possible? Be honest with me, that seems kind of crazy, doesn't it? Like, PD, you've done lost your mind. No, we can be the friends of God. And I want you to see just a couple things this morning as we look at this text. First of all, I want you to see something here in Abraham that, that, that is just key for us, and it's Abraham's hospitality in verses 1 through 8. I'm not, I've made you turn to a lot of verses, but I want to read to you a verse out of the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 13, or excuse me, Hebrews chapter, yeah, 13, and verse 2 says this, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Now, is God's word true, church? Is that really true? That some have entertained angels unawares? And by, by what he means here by hospitality to strangers, it means to show kindness to people you don't know. To show kindness to people you don't know. And what God is telling us in the book of Hebrews actually took place here in Genesis chapter 18. Because when Jesus, the pre-incarnate Christ, shows up at Abraham's tent, he has two others with him. Who does he have with him? He has a couple angels with him, doesn't he? He has a couple heavenly beings with him that look like men. They appear as three men who just show up. Romans chapter 12 and verse 13 tells us that as Paul's writing there to the church at Rome, you, me, we're to seek to show hospitality. Seek to show hospitality. Now, I don't know about you, 
I know I come across as this big extrovert on Sunday mornings, but I tend to be a guy that the other six days of the week, I just kind of like to meld into the back a little bit. I don't like to talk to strangers. Anybody else in this room like that? I have a family member, a sister-in-law, who I will never forget. We were, it was early on when we were married that, that my wife and I went with my brother and a couple of his kids and my sister-in-law to Cedar Point. And my sister-in-law doesn't ride rides, okay? She had the best day of any of us, and we rode a lot of rides that day because you know what she did the whole time? She sat and she chatted up every person. You know, we had, to wait to get on, we had to wait to get on rides, and then we would have to wait for her to cut off her conversation so we could go to the next ride. She just loved to talk to strangers. That's not who I am. But I want you to know this, that he doesn't realize. You say, well, of course Abraham's kind to these people because he knows it's, it's, it's God and it's two angels. No, Abraham doesn't know that. I pointed it out. Look at verse 3. And he said, oh, Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not let pass by your servants, okay? If he knew that that was God showing up at his door, do you think there would have been a different greeting? Honestly, do you think there would have been a different greeting? I do. If you knew today at 4 o'clock you were going to get a knock on your door and it was Almighty God standing at your front door, how many of you would rush home right now before I'm even done and get the house clean? How many of you would start throwing away stuff that you don't really want them to see? Huh? Right? He doesn't know this is God in the flesh. But Abraham sets an example of hospitality here for us. Number one, I want you to see this in verse two. He's ready to receive a stranger. He didn't have to think. He didn't have to run in and say to Sarah, there's strangers out there. What do we do? He already has a plan and he knows what he's going to do. He knows he's going to treat them with grace and he's going to act as their servant. Do you see it there in verse three? He's like, do not pass by your servant. You want to be a good person who's hospitable? You want to be good at hospitality? You've got to see yourself as the servant of those who are strangers. You've got to see yourself as the servant of those who are strangers. He doesn't say, he doesn't say to Sarah, oh, you know, you've you got to make room for these people to sit down or, or why did you leave the kitchen such a mess or whatever. He, he just basically says, hey, my tent is your tent, right? He's ready to receive them. Secondly, he goes to them and he greets them. He doesn't wait for them to come for the awkward knock on the tent door or whatever. He goes to them. He doesn't wait for them to initiate it. And then thirdly, he does exactly what he takes the posture of doing, and that is that he serves them. And he doesn't just serve them in a little way. He makes sure that their feet are washed. He makes sure that they rest. He makes sure that they're well fed. And while Sarah's making bread, he's out and he's finding the best calf that he can find and he's slaughtering it and he's helping his men get it prepared and he's bringing part of the meal himself. Every wife's dream, a husband who will get in the kitchen and cook with him or maybe not. Maybe some of you are like, stay out of my kitchen. But here he is, he's actively working. Really, hospitality is doing what? It's treating others as you would want to be treated. If Abraham was traveling, would he want to be treated that way? Yeah. And that's what he's doing for them. And I'm reminded of Jesus' words. 
I'm reminded of Jesus' words because, let's be honest, it's not very often we have strangers that show up at our door. And if we do, in our day and age, we're like, what are you doing, right? Is the Ring doorbell app working right? Right? It's kind of, it's kind of the, 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 the day and age that we live in. We're skeptical of strangers showing up. But I'm reminded of Jesus' words. Keep your finger here and go with me to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25, thinking about this idea of hospitality. And in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus says this in verse 34. He's talking about when there comes that time for final judgment. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you. And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. What's Jesus telling us here? What's Jesus cluing us into here about hospitality? Okay, what he's saying here is, okay, yeah, we may not have Jesus show up at our front door, but every day we interact with people all around us who need some hospitality. Do you realize that? Church, do you realize that? Every day we interact with people who need a little bit of hospitality. And we can actively demonstrate our friendship with Christ because remember, we are His friends if we do whatever He what? Commands us. We can actively demonstrate our friendship with Christ by the way that we love strangers around us. By the way that we love strangers around us. In light of what we saw in John chapter 13 last week, this area of hospitality then, I think it's fair to say, is a tangible expression of how we love others as Christ loved us. It's a tangible way that we can do that. And so what we see here is Abraham doing this, and in verse 18, he still, or verse 8, excuse me, of chapter 18, he still acts as the servant. He is there waiting on them as they eat. Do you see it there? He took the curds and the milk and the calf that he had prepared. He set it before them. He stood by them under the tree while they ate. We only have a few instances in the New Testament of Jesus eating meals, right? We have him eating meals. He, he goes to Lazarus' house and, and, he, and he eats a meal, Right? And we have other, a couple other cases where he eats a meal. He, he goes to a, a Pharisee's house and he eats a meal. We know that he ate with the tax collectors and the sinners. We also have a record of him eating a meal with his disciples, don't we? The Last Supper, right? And here in the Old Testament, trivia question, you can stump your brother-in-law that you don't like in Bible trivia, okay? True or false, did Jesus ever eat a meal in the Old Testament? What's the answer, church? It's true. He did. And here Jesus is sharing a meal, and he's doing it in the presence of Abraham. It's an amazing thought. It's an amazing thought. And so they eat this meal, and Abraham asks as the gracious host, and they ask the question then in verse 9, hey, where's Sarah? 
And it just always strikes me because I just, I can't help, I read this as a man. I have no other way to read this. And I'm, if, if, if somebody, a stranger comes, eats a meal, maybe compliments, and, and maybe, maybe in the course of that conversation it came out that Sarah was his wife, but, but then the question, hey, where is Sarah, your wife? I would be skeptical. How many else would be skeptical? Maybe, there's, maybe he's thinking maybe they want to pay her a compliment or maybe they want to complain that her bread is just too lumpy or something. I don't know. Where is Sarah, your wife? He says, she's in the tent. And then God does something that only God does for us. He addresses Sarah, although indirectly, does he know that she's listening? Has he already given this information to Abraham? Does Abraham know everything? We saw it in chapter 17. Why would God repeat the same information to Abraham? Does he need to? No, he's doing it for whose benefit here? How many of you wrestle with doubt at times? How many of you wrestle with doubt? Do you suppose that between chapter 17 and chapter 18 that Abraham told the news to his wife? How many of you would agree with me that Abraham had to tell the news to his wife, right? And I'm sure when, when Sarah heard that news from Abraham, she's like, yeah, right. Yeah, right. This is just one of your ploys, Abraham. I know what you're up to. No, God said it. God said it. And I'm sure in her mind, she's like, yeah, God said it, but did he really say it? And now God comes and reaffirms the promise so she can hear it. You say, I wish God would do that for me today. How many of you wish God would reaffirm some promises for you? Guess what? He does every day in His Word. He does it every day in His Word. These these timeless promises of God are true for us today. And He is reaffirming His promises to us just as sure as He spoke there outside of Abraham's tent. He is speaking for Sarah's benefit. And I want to say to you, those of us in this room who are wrestling with doubt and wrestling with whether or not God's really got something good for us and wrestling with whether or not this is all going to work out, God has His promises in the Word for us today. They're here. And so He reiterates it. And he says, verse 10, I will surely return to you about this time next year. Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. She hears it directly from God's mouth, just like Abraham did. But her response is a little different, isn't it? And I want want you to see this. Sarah responds with human logic. How many of you respond to God's promises with human logic? It's natural. We're human, right? God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you, yet there are times that we are so afraid and literally shaking in our boots, we don't really put that together because our human logic says, I need to be afraid right now, right? She responds with human logic, and her human logic is basically this. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years, verse 11, the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. She knows what's going on here. She knows he's old and I'm definitely old. It's not physically possible 
This is not going to happen. Stop with the pipe dream. And she responds with laughter and a faithless statement. Sarah's response is unbelief. And in case you wonder how I can come to that conclusion, look at verse 15 at the end of this account. Why did she lie to God? Because she was what? (laughs) Because she's afraid. If you're afraid, do you have much faith? Church, if you're afraid, do you have much faith? No, there's not much faith here in Sarah. There's, 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 there's not a shred of faith right now. Her response is unbelief, and then she tries to cover up her response with a lie, and that's what unbelief does. Unbelief leads us down a path of more sin. The sin of unbelief leads to other sin, because whatever is not of faith is what? Sin. And she's looking at the circumstance. And it's a legitimate circumstance. Let's not minimize this for a second. She is old. That's undeniable. And yet God has said, you're going to have a son. Again, we come to this uncomfortable point in Scripture that God brings us to numerous times in the Scripture where two facts don't seem to work together, do they? Old woman going to have a baby. And so the Lord does what God does. He rebukes her. He doesn't say, you know what, because you doubted, you're not going to be able to have this child. Guess what? Abraham, Sarah, you're on the shelf. I'm going to find a new Abraham. No. But he corrects her. He corrects her. And he says it to Abraham because he knows that Sarah's in the tent and Sarah's listening. Look at verse 13. The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? In verse 15, she denies it. I did not laugh for she was afraid. And he said, no, no, but you did laugh. And that points out something here that I want to make sure that every one of us understands. And I want you to turn with me to Psalm 139. I want you to see it for yourself. Psalm 139, verse 1. The psalmist writes here, David writes, O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. Look up here. Does God, has God searched you? Does God know you? Is that truth? He knows, he knows the things you're afraid of. He knows the things that really get under your skin. He knows what you're discouraged about right now. Does God know all of that? Verse 2, you know when I sit down. When I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. God knows. God knows. He knows our actions. He knows our thoughts. He knows all our ways. He even knows the words before we speak them. You and I can't hide our sin from God. He already knows it. Sarah can't hide. She can't lie her way out of this one. Maybe she has lied her way out of stuff with Abraham, but she's not going to be able to lie her way out of stuff here with God. God clearly challenges her and rebukes her. No, but you did laugh. First John 3.20 tells us this, that he knows everything. 
He's omniscient and he's omnipresent. He knows everything and he's everywhere at all times. He doesn't miss anything. God doesn't miss anything, folks. He heard Sarah's laughter loud and clear. And so when he rebukes her, he also gives her some reassurance too. And I want you to see that in verse 14. This is a question that every single one of us has to wrestle with. This isn't just a question for Sarah. This is a question for us today in 2023 in Johnstown, Ohio. And the question is this, is anything too hard for the Lord? What is the answer, church, on a Sunday morning sitting in church? What's the answer? Is it the same answer Monday morning? Is it the same answer Wednesday afternoon when your boss calls you in and says you're going to get laid off? Is that still the same answer? Is it the same answer when you go to the doctor and the doctor uses terms and stuff that you don't really want to hear? Is that the same answer then? Is anything too hard for God? Is it the same at midnight on Saturday, next Saturday, when you and your wife are fighting so bad and you're ready to throw into the, to the towel on it and say, that's it, I'm done? Is that still the same answer? No. Is it, church? Is anything too hard for God, church? But it's really easy to give the no answer in church on a Sunday morning, isn't it? Right? Right? Because we all believe this together, and, but we also know that we're going to go out this week and we're just going to do what we do, and we're going to kind of say that we believe it, but we're going to try and take matters in our own hands, right? Let's look at this from Sarah's perspective. Sarah's eyes are clearly on the circumstance, are they not? Can anyone in this room blame her for her eyes being on the circumstance? It's a pretty legitimate circumstance, is it not? We have some OB nurses in this, in this room here right now. I'm guaranteeing you none of them have ever delivered a baby from a 100-year-old woman. Right? Anybody want to? No. Okay. <laughs> That's the guy who's going to be your deacon, people. <laughs> Maybe we should reconsider that. Sarah's eyes are on the circumstance, just like you and I are prone to do. She's thinking about age. She's thinking about Abraham's health. She's thinking about this, too. This is what she's thinking about. There is no way that God, when I am 100 years old, is going to give me a toddler to have to chase after. Right? That's what she's thinking. And here's what God is doing with this question, and it's what He wants to do for you and I in the question. He is redirecting us from the circumstance to put our eyes firmly off of the circumstance and onto Him and His person. Is there anything too hard for our God? Stop looking at the circumstance and look at your God. And that's what He's doing here. And here's where you and I are a lot like Sarah. We take our eyes off of God. I'm not accusing you. I'm speaking from firsthand experience. We take our eyes off of God. Anybody else in this room want to confess that? 
We take our eyes off of God. We take our eyes off of this grand, glorious God sitting in, in, in the throne room of heaven where the cherubim and seraphim are crying out, holy, holy, holy. We take our eyes off of this God who when we sing, great is thy faithfulness, it sounds great on a Sunday morning, but on Wednesday it just doesn't cut it because we can't really see our God then on Wednesday, can we? Because we're too busy looking at the circumstances. And we forget that he is all-powerful. We forget that he's all-wise. We forget that he is faithful and that he's never let us down. And we allow for circumstances to dictate where we place our faith. It's all part of human nature. If we had time, we'd go through the scriptures and I'd show it to you over and over. But let me give you a couple examples. In the Old Testament, the Israelites that were delivered out of Egypt, not only did they see Pharaoh's armies drowning in the Red Sea, how cool would that be? I mean, be honest. You are being pursued by Pharaoh and you know that he is going to want to drag you back and put you back into slavery. And then all of a sudden, you're walking through the water on dry ground and you turn and you look back and they're all like, I can't swim. Tell me you wouldn't get pumped about that. Then they get in the wilderness, and they're thirsty. God, we're thirsty. You brought us out here. We're so thirsty. And what does God do? He brings water out of a rock. Who does that? Me? I would have made a well, right? God, he's just like, oh, no, let's get some water out of this rock here. They get water out of the rock, but then all of a sudden they get hungry and they doubt whether God can furnish bread. Church, let me ask you a question. If God can bring water out of a rock, can he make sure that you are fed the, the daily amount that you need? Can he? Yeah. But the Israelites, all they could see was the fact was, I'm so hungry. And they're looking at their kids crying, I'm so hungry, mommy. New Testament illustration. Remember that story of Peter and Jesus where Jesus comes walking on the water? How cool would that be? How cool would that be? How scary would that be? Right? Peter's the brave one. Hey, Jesus, if it's really you, ask me to come on the water. In the back of his mind, he's like, man, I hope it's not Jesus. <laughs> right? And what does Jesus say? To put it in today's parlance, come on, dude. Come on. And he gets out there and he's doing it right? Until he does what? He looks at his circumstance. And what's the circumstance? Man, it is a storm out here. Hey, do you realize that it's storm? These waves are big. And as he's looking at the waves, he does what? Straight down. We're no different. We read the promises of God. We have experience where God has been faithful. Do you, can you look back in your life and see where God's been faithful? Can you do that? But I bet you're just like me. You forget it, right? I do. I forget it. These waves are pretty big. These waves are huge. God, do you realize how big... And, and before long, I'm sinking. And the question that every one of us has to be hit right between the eyes with is, is there anything too hard for our God? If he can speak the universe into existence, if he can uphold it by the word of his power, can, if he can save and keep us, is there anything too hard for him? No. No. 
Sarah is hiding in the background at the door of the tent, laughing in unbelief, saying, this is crazy talk. And God, rather than just saying this to her, like, that's it, you're done, I'm done working with you, you're a dumb woman, I can't handle you. And Abraham, you married her, what were you thinking? You're done too. This is what God does. No. Sarah, is there anything too hard for me? Is there anything too hard for me? Can I just say this to us this morning? We have a powerful God. We have a very powerful God. And there's nothing too hard for him. Nothing. You say, but you don't know the things I'm going through. I don't need to know what you're going through. I just know this, that there is nothing that you're going through that is beyond God's power and his ability to, to work for his glory. There's nothing. But maybe you're like me at times. How many of you feel like your faith is just like really like a raisin that shrivels up? You feel like that? That's what I feel like sometimes. This is what I've had to come to grips with this week. I have not because I ask not. You know what? I just need to ask for more faith. Jesus, increase my faith. Increase my faith. Because I want to look, I want to look at the circumstances like I can do something about them. How many of you have ever been to the ocean or just like to a, a, a Great Lake or something like that? Could you imagine the audacity of thinking that you could go out there and make the waves stop? Anybody want to try it? Like, let's go. We can build something big enough that we can make the wave stop. No matter how big you build it, when God sends a storm, it will batter it, right? You and I can't stop the waves. Guess who can? Jesus can. With a word. Peace. Be still. Sees like glass. That's the God that we serve. That's the one who's redeemed us. And he is asking us this morning, is there anything too hard for you? And what's the answer? No. What's the answer on Wednesday night? What's the answer on Friday afternoon, church? What's the answer on Saturday morning, church? No. What's the answer a month from now, church? What's the answer three years from now? What's the answer when you're worried about whether or not you have enough money to send your kid to school or whatever it is? What's the answer for all of that? The answer is a firm, no, nothing's too hard. Nothing's too hard. Oh God, increase our faith. Father, two amazing things in this passage of Scripture this morning. One, that, that, that we would be reminded that, that we can be the friend of God. And two, that this one that we're the friend of, nothing is too hard for you. Nothing is too hard for you. Forgive us, forgive us, Lord, for our faithlessness, for our, for our, our propensity to look at all the circumstances around us. They're scary, God. We admit it. They are, there are some scary circumstances in every one of our lives. Forgive us for just keeping our eyes on those circumstances and not on you, the great and almighty one, the God who is bigger 
than all of our circumstances. The God who has ordained these circumstances so that we might grow and that we might glorify you, God. May we live up to that call, I pray. In Christ's name, amen.